Welcome back to another episode of Questions and Answers about the Bible and Theology. In this episode, we're going to talk about corporate worship. I'm joined by Rich Penix, an elder at Eden Baptist Church, who's currently studying corporate worship at Westminster Seminary. We had originally planned for Rich to be our Bible conference speaker this spring, but that was postponed because of COVID. We are going to have that conference in October, and this episode serves to make up for some of the lost time now that we're doing it in a bit of a mini format, and it will help us start thinking about corporate worship as we anticipate that conference. So Rich, thanks for being willing to talk with us about corporate worship today. Absolutely. Looking forward to the conversation. Well, I think we probably need to start by defining what worship is so we know what we're talking about. So what would be a good definition of worship for us to have is our working definition today? Right. This is, it seems like a, perhaps an obvious answer, but it's pretty uh, difficult to, to land on as far as what, what you might find in responses from church members. Um, a lot of confusion probably has taken place as far as defining worship by its English sort of derivatives. And I think a better you know, track as to how does the Bible understand the concept from cover to cover. And a couple of books that have really been helpful for me um, is Engaging with God by David Peterson, as well as For the Glory of God by uh, Daniel Block. And each of those kind of, Daniel Block has a, a real expertise in the Old Testament. Peterson, really, really helpful things in the New Testament. And they kind of, so I, I've kind of done a mashup in a sense for my own understanding of what worship is by taking the best of their definitions uh, arriving at at this this conclusion is, and it's based on the just as you categorize so much of uh, how the Bible from cover to cover understands uh, the the term and how it's used, you kind of get these three categories of worship as homage, which is kind of public honor, respect, and grateful submission to God, and then secondly, worship as service to God, and then thirdly, worship as reverence and respect for God. So when you you kind of work through um, even the, the the Hebrew and Greek uh, words literally have these this this uh, idea of a bending over prostrating oneself on the ground something in in our uh, understanding of a, a long live the king sort of homage and respect um, and so so worship under both covenants has this idea of living all of life in service and submission to God. And then paying public homage and and gratefully submitting ourselves to to all that he's said and all that he's done. So here's sort of the the definition I've, I've arrived at. True worship involves reverential human acts of submission, homage, and service before the divine sovereign in response to his gracious revelation of himself and in accord with his will. And obviously that revelation of himself is in different eras um, and ultimately uh, is in Christ. That that definition is really helpful, and I think it would steer us away from hearing the term worship service or worship pastor or just worship mm-hmm. conference and think only in terms of a music, a musical That's event right. or something exactly. like that or musical oversight. And in in that definition, I get the sense that really all of life is worship. Absolutely, yes, and uh, even in in thinking through that. That idea of um, 
you know, in what aspects is all of life worship <clears throat> different from corporate worship? Mm-hmm. Uh, we might even say, you know, how do these things go together? It's somewhat popular in our day, um, even in North America, I think, with our, our roots and revivalism and just the prolific output over the past few hundred years in this country in particular of parachurch ministries, just a robust, solid biblical understanding of what the church is and therefore when it gathers, what it ought to do, and the significance for spiritual formation that that gathering is weekly is incredibly undervalued, I, I think, still in the, in the life of the church. And, um, you know, when we really think of the, the uniqueness of and, and what makes corporate worship distinct and special. Um, you know, corporate, I, I've heard some people get confused by that. They think that they're, they're in a, um, some sort of conference room and a business setting. When they hear that word corporate, it trips them up. Um, all that means is the collective uh, gathering by, by a, a body of individuals, a body of people together doing something. Uh, so it really shouldn't trip us up. Uh, but it there's sort of these multiple rings of meaning. I think uh, all of life worship is absolutely thoroughly biblical, um, and it has been uh, thoroughly biblical since God began giving His law to His people. I mean, every the reason why there's so many laws under the old 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 Testament law is to to convey that God cares about every component of life, and that every law uh, was given with a uh, with an understanding that that a Godward glance, that God has an opinion on literally everything. And so, um, you know, we, we think of, we, we shouldn't think only in terms of all of life of worship is a New Testament thing. Uh, not at all. God's people, um, under very different circumstances and a very different covenant, um, nevertheless, we're to understand that to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, and mind is a constant thing. And, and we would probably look even further back and see Adam and Eve mm-hmm. made in God's image as inherently worshiping creatures. That's right. absolutely. And, and so it's, it's mm-hmm. for all of human history, all of life has absolutely. been worship. Amen. Um, so I think those, you know, as we kind of work our way, uh, as far as understanding the uniqueness of corporate worship, all of life is the largest ring. And then as you kind of move inward... There's all different other aspects of personal worship, private worship, home worship, family worship, even small group, you know, in a Bible study or something, worship that may take place. But at the center of it all, I think, is that unique grace of corporate worship. And uh, that is the most central, and I I think in a lot of ways, the most significant aspect of worship, um, where corporate worship, if we want to sort of define it uniquely... um, Corporate worship is uh, the gathering on the Lord's Day of the Lord's people, worshiping the triune God in spirit and in truth. It's regulated by the Word, and it's it's for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel in word and song and in symbol through the ordinances um, as as the covenant assembly of, of God's people. Now, if, if we look back in church history away, especially around the time of the Reformers, there was probably a move against a really sharp divide between 
kind of gathered worship and all of life worship, but more particularly in the form of the clergy and the laity. And I think Mm -hmm. there was a breaking down of the divide between the sacred and the secular that was really, really good. But it sounds Mm -hmm. like maybe Mm -hmm. now we've swung too far to the other direction and we've so equalized Mm -hmm. the gathered assembly and the scattered assembly that we could be in danger of saying my private worship at home is exactly the same as gathered worship. And so it's not really necessary to gather with the church. Absolutely. And I, I, I think just under, understanding how the, the, the people of God are the, the assembly where, where God uniquely blesses the proclamation of the word and meets with his people in a unique and special way uh, to to encourage the the body of Christ and to build them up through the scriptures. And I think that uniqueness uniqueness as his new covenant people, which are the temple of God, um, where the spirit of God is indwelling. This is kind of the carry over extension, uh, the new covenant fulfillment of so much that was a type and a shadow under the old covenant that we so undervalue Mm -hmm. and we don't understand in a lot of ways the full-orbed blessing that it is to to gather. Uh, That's a really good um, point I think you made. Great. So so we think about the New Covenant community Mm -hmm. more than New Covenant individuals. We think about Mm -hmm. texts like 1 Corinthians 5, where t- Paul talks about when you're gathered and the Spirit of the Lord is with you, or, or the Spirit power of Christ is present with you, right. this uniqueness of the gathered assembly. Mm-hmm. So as, as we read about churches worshiping, those who followed Christ coming together and worshiping throughout Acts and into the New Testament letters, do we practice gathered corporate worship in the same way that the first Christians did? So I think a simple answer is yes and and no in some ways, but uh, similarities abound in our worship today, um, even as one of the earliest records of a Christian worship context is actually we in the writings of Justin Martyr. He was one of the earliest church fathers uh, who lived approximately 100 to 165 AD. So he's writing just just some decades after some of the New Testament um you know, writings have been completed. So he he says this, which is interesting. On the day of the sun, so Sunday, all who live in towns or in the country gather together in one place. So here's a coming together. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. So here we have the the writings, the memories, the, uh, this is New Testament writing, as well as the prophets. So we have Old and New Testament readings represented. Uh, then when the reader has ceased, the one presiding verbally instructs and, exor- and exhorts to the imitation of the good example cited. So here is probably something resembling preaching. This is exhortational, you know, in light of what you've just heard, live this way. Then it continues, then all rise together and prayers are offered. So here is the the congregation lifting prayers. At length, he writes, prayer being ended, bread and wine and water are brought, and the one presiding offers prayers and thanksgiving to the best of his ability, and the people assent by saying amen. And the distribution is made to each one uh, 
of his share of the elements. So, you know, even in an early sketch of what the early Christians were doing, we see a lot of similarity to even what 2,000 years later is happening in worship. One other aspect to that is, is which is just helpful to know about, is uh, synagogue worship and how formative that was in Christian worship. A lot of Christian worship borrows from synagogue worship, and we know very little um, about when and how Jewish synagogues really came into being, uh, probably during or after the Babylonian exile. Um, Jesus' disciples worship both in the temple and the synagogues. Jesus himself read the Isaiah scroll and declared prophecy was fulfilled in their hearing. He cast out uh, an evil spirit from a man in a synagogue at Capernaum in a synagogue, um, and, and several other examples, even in Acts. And uh, Stephen preached there, and uh, Paul and Apollos preached Christ in Ephesus in a synagogue. So synagogue worship is, is far less ornate uh, than worship in the temple. There were no sacrifices, oblations, these sorts of things. Uh, but there were four primary elements that are pretty well documented. Reading of the scriptures and other Jewish sacred books, chants or text from the Psalter, prayers, and a homily or a, a sermon. So in, in a lot of ways, what Christian worship did was it was influenced by and continued by, but repurposed many of those aspects of, of synagogue worship in much more prominently Christian ways, uh, resulting in what we see in Acts 2.42 and, and other texts that, that lay out kind of what primarily was given to us. So I would say in a lot of ways, there is so much continuity. And, you know, by conviction, a lot of us are familiar with what's called the regulative principle, which simply is that the Bible alone regulates what we do in corporate worship. So corporate worship isn't a blank canvas where we come and we say, let's do whatever we feel like as long as it's good-hearted and, um, you know, guided by you know, the most generic Christian principles. But it says, no, we, we have a lot of instruction if we're carefully reading the Bible to what ought to happen. And a lot of those are rooted right in uh, to what the early church was doing. I'm glad you mentioned the synagogue in the connection of Christian worship to experiences they already had. Because I think we can start to read the Bible from our vantage point and see people like Saul, later the Apostle Paul, and talk in terms of a, a big conversion from Judaism to Christianity, where probably there's actually more continuity there than what we would expect if we were transported back there. It maybe would have been more of an understanding of a continuation and further revelation of this deeply seated religion and religious practices. So it's not as if corporate worship is something new that started post-resurrection. Right, absolutely. And I think we do, uh, you know, ought to recognize that th this is a pivotal hinge point in redemptive history. Mm -hmm. And so when we do th see things like a just a preponderance of signs and wonders that are taking place in a high volume uh, that, that should not surprise us, as God oftentimes does this at really pivotal moments to not only validate the message of, of the apostles in this case, uh, but in other points where it's as if God is saying, make no mistake about it. this is significant, don't miss it. And so for us to, to look 
truly apples to apples with no variation and to say, we must therefore do everything we see in the book of Acts, I think loses some of that formative influence that the book of Acts uh, in its embryonic sort of seed-like form, yes, a continuation of, 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 of you know, so, so much of what um, has been laid down in Scripture thus far, but also beginning sort of the church age. And um, so, so I do, I would tend to think in terms of continuity over discontinuity uh, with that caveat that, of course, God is doing something very unique and being validated by um, these, these signs and wonders. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that shift of Sunday is a day now where the church gathers is representative of that mm-hmm. new and different expression of worship as, as the church now centers on the risen mm-hmm. Lord. You mentioned regulative principle. For those who aren't familiar with that, you define that. Can you talk about the opposite side of that spectrum, the the normative principle mm-hmm. and what that is and, and how the two relate as we look at the Bible, and while there's a lot there, we also don't have orders of service in direct reference to exactly what you should do or what instruments you should play. How, how do we navigate these two ends of the spectrum? All right, well, kind of standing upon what we've already discussed so far is that we actually do have a lot um, to, to, to stand upon as far as what the church did and what, what it ought to give itself to when it gathers to build up the saints in a way that uh, is is prescribed by the Lord, um, but th- th- this is this is partially where we stand. You know, very grateful where we are in church history on looking backwards, and for two thousand years, what has the church done, and what have been some helpful patterns that have continued that, that we should be in- instructed by. And I think one of those, and this is sort of. Um, a continual conviction, if you will, is is when we think about constructing and putting together worship services, is that's a a gospel-shaped uh, liturgy. And if, if I say liturgy a few more times, I simply mean the ordering of worship mm-hmm. and and what what kind of um, gets the you know gets the pass as far as what makes it into um, the order of service. And in many ways, the church has given itself over and over and over to the retelling and the representing of the gospel story even in structure and how it structures the service that even when and this is in in many cases when the when the gospel itself was lost in in the preaching and in other ways sometimes the structure of the service was the last gospel message sort of being proclaimed um, in many ways and by that, I mean that the, the arc or the contour of the service itself is a, a representing and a reminder to God's people of the, the basic components and tenets of the gospel. Mm-hmm. So uh, if we think even Isaiah 6 for a moment, Isaiah, he saw the glory of God, and it was, it was his immediate reaction to seeing the greatness and glory of God was, wasn't, oh, this is awesome. This is, this is great. His, his self-analysis did not rise. It was immediately crushed. <laughs> he knew something about himself. Woe is me. I'm coming undone. Um, I'm probably going to die. And it is only as there's a God-appointed means of atonement coming from the angel to his lips that provides atonement and cleanses him. 
And after grace is then extended and mercy is received, he then, his response is, now, uh, here am I, send me. Mm-hmm. And so if you think it, if very simply in those three categories of glory, grace, and then mission mm-hmm. is sort of a, a, a rise and fall of where, uh, you know, I think even um, every, every church service in different ways, but historically this has been very consistent in the, the ordering of liturgy that the church has sought to give itself to. Other ways of saying it are... God is holy, we are sinners, Jesus saves us, Jesus sends us. Mm-hmm. Or the three G's, the glory of God, the gravity of sin, and the grandeur of grace. Uh, so the, the content of Christian worship, the substance that defines the shape and structure, is the gospel. And that's sort of the, the key conviction there, mm-hmm. that um, we ought to be representing the gospel story in form even as the sermon presents it in words, and uh, as as uh, even the ordinances present it in symbol, mm-hmm. the structure itself presents it then in um, the gospel and structure. Well, that that's helpful, and it pulls back the curtain a little bit on planning a Sunday morning service. So it's not just a matter of flipping through the songbook and figuring out which songs we haven't sung recently, but it's actually trying to craft a service that follows that gospel arc. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that is a, a key conviction, that as we try to think through uh, the ordering of prayers and songs and readings, um, and, and where each component ought to fit, we are, are, are highly aware of that um, representing of the gospel. But we're also guided by a certain other Protestant conviction, um, that is the, the, a sermon text-shaped uh, focus, so that the, the, the primacy of the Word, and that was a, that was a unique point that was uh, a standout moment in the, in the Protestant Reformation, that the Eucharist itself, just getting a little morsel or, or a, a little bit of juice in me, is not the only sum and total of why I'm coming uh, to worship. But it is the it is the word of God that is able to make sense of those symbols, and so they are are they stand upon the the word. And so, with the primacy of the word, we 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 want to aim the service uh, in a way that highlights and underscores and and deepens our meditation on the the text that's going to be um, preached that morning. So. When we think through this, we think, okay, what aspect of the gospel and what aspects of Christian truth are being uniquely highlighted and are a little more pronounced in a particular text? And you can't say everything about all of Christian scripture uh, in a single worship service. So there could be a unique focus on the throne room of God or at, at, you know, looking, looking to um, the difficulties of, of the struggles and trials of this current life, or there could be um, uh, many other different you know, d- dimensions. And so there's a, a strong effort as well to try to shape and to choose um, you know, songs and texts that are going to support and embellish um, that, that concept. And the final point of just how, when I'm, you know, we're thinking through structuring services, what is going to allow the congregation to be as active and engaged as possible? Uh, another Protestant conviction: worship being restored to the people rather than rituals performed by, for them by appointed priests. 
as was the case for a long, long time in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, I'm always asking, will this be understood by the Lord's people? Uh, this is so they can personally, at a heart level, engage with what's being communicated, whether we're reading a historic prayer, which we sometimes do as a prayer of confession, or uh, another uh, ancient creed or confession that we want to use to to ground us in a certain uh, timeless truth, or or a prayer, or even the the the, the way a prayer is is communicated, or the the choice of words in the preaching that that there is intelligible worship that is grasped by the people of God in their language and uh, is able to be truly you know that the the amen even as Justin Martyr said that was echoed. There, whether they verbalize it or not, are saying that yes, that I I add my amen to that because I understand it and I believe it, and it's it's as good for me as it is for the person leading. Sort of this match that that takes place. So there's just a few points on uh, convictions that help kind of guide the the construction of a service. Mm-hmm. I, I think that point on congregational involvement is really important. Sometimes Christians can fail to be involved simply because they don't come prepared to be involved. What what should Christians be doing to prepare for corporate worship as a gathered assembly? And what would that participation look like more concretely in our own services. Yeah, I'm glad you said planning. I think I think planning is one of the least, um, how do I say this, the least utilized and probably most obvious uh, thing. I mean, if we do anything, if we go on vacation, if we go, you know, golfing, if we do anything, we, we go prepared and we kind of, you know, shame on us if we forgot our clubs or we didn't even think to do this or that or you know, we what's significant to us, we plan and prepare for. And uh, so in the most general way, uh, we have to, we can't not point out that that vibrant corporate worship is always preceded by meaningful, vibrant personal worship. And who we are, it, it's not that, that you know, a, a couple hours on a Sunday somehow zaps us into um, spiritual maturity and all of a sudden we're uh, a totally different person. Um, not at all. And, and so in many ways, it is an overflow of what is already happening on a daily basis in our own hearts. Um, and that, is, that, that can't be undervalued. Um, but I think there is a, a, a thoughtfulness that all of us, regardless of where we are, uh, whether we're leading to pastors, um, that, that we can always be improving in a heart level. How can I glean all that God intends for me to derived by his grace from this gift of corporate worship. Um, so whatever advance notice, um, you know, the, your church in particular, whatever church you're a part of gives you as to what's going to be included in that uh, order of service, whether the, the songs are perhaps made ava- available to you beforehand, or you at least know the, the, the sermon text that's coming up. Um, perhaps there's even more than that. Uh, make an effort, even if it's just a sermon text, take a stab at trying to grasp the main idea of the text and come with a few questions and have an inquisitive heart that wants to know and is, is really uh, diving into the, the text itself. Perhaps it's reading the text with your family the night before, if that applies for you, um, and, and helping lead your family. Um, you know, I think what participation looks like is... Uh, 
and, and those who lead in any capacity in, in, in a church service understand the difference between someone that is just evidently, keenly listening and engaged, and it is so refreshing. Um, but growing in that skill of adding the silent amen in our hearts to each and every prayer that's offered, each and every song that is sung, where there's a, there's a humble personalizing happening constantly throughout the service. Um, I think even just singing with joy and enthusiasm, responding, yes, to what God is doing within you, but also encouraging, singing for the purpose of encouraging the body. And there's, there's probably a um, no greater disruption to the work of God in, you know, when you think of, let's just say, a family context, uh, to those that, you know, fathers and mothers you're, you're leading and exemplifying than a bored, disinterested, uh, you know, hypercritical, constantly distracted, uh, just evidently disinterested heart in corporate worship. The damage that could potentially do uh, to the work of God in souls is is immense, and I don't I don't think we talk about mm-hmm. that um, nearly enough. Some ways that we as church leaders try to help members at Crystal Lake to prepare is by putting the songs on a Spotify playlist so that you can be familiar with them, you can hear them, you can know the tune, um, even if they're performed Mm -hmm. differently in that Mm -hmm. recording than we'll sing together. We try to remind people when the Lord's Supper will be observed, the first and third Sunday morning of every month. And so there's that regular pattern, but then we try to remind. And then one thing that we're probably not as consistent in that I'm challenged now to think about more is, is sending out that sermon text mm. in the, the week before mm. mm-hmm. and just allowing people to meditate on that word, to, to think on it in the yeah. week ahead. I think as many aspects as, uh, as we can to you know, avoid surprises and <laughs> to give opportunity for good planning uh, will only deepen their, their appropriation of, of God's grace in the service. Well, this has been an encouraging conversation and helpful as we think about the the upcoming Bible conference. As we close here, what are some books that you would recommend for our members to read related to corporate worship? Yeah, there's a, a book that is coming out. It's actually not quite out yet, but it will be soon. And I've, uh, for a strange reason, been able to get a hold of it ahead of time and, and read through it. And it is really good. It'll probably be my go-to book to, on this topic. And it's simply called Corporate Worship by Matt Merker. It's through Nine Marks. Um, Matt led worship at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. for many years and, and has just in the last year moved to Nashville, I think, to work with Keith and Kristen Getty. But uh, this book is is really, really well done and clear and accessible and pushes on all the the same kind of heart level <laughs> passions that you know I'm, I feel strongly about, and we've t- touched on even even now. So that that is you have to wait a little bit for that one. But there's also a book called Sing by the Gettys, and it's it's uh, you know we've already said worship is not just music, but singing is a big part of it, and that book is really really good as well. In fact, I have a few extra copies. No way. So I am happy to give those away and whatever capacity you'd like. Okay, um, so so we'll have a couple copies of that book available, and maybe we'll be able to have some more if people are interested for when you're be, here. That'd be great. As far as kind of like a theology of worship, if someone wants to think a little little deeper on the um, 
the concepts as a whole, those that I mentioned earlier, the, the one by David Peterson, um, engaging with God and Daniel Block for the glory of God are great starts. And then as far as worship leading, uh, one that I've been helped by is simply called The Worship Pastor by Zach Hicks, and he explores a lot of the different metaphors uh, for what um, you know, leading in worship is doing and, and is a very helpful book. So those are just a few that come to mind. Great. Thank you. I would add one book, Worship Matters, uh, that's a little bit thicker. I think you might have actually right. introduced me to that book, and I know Josh has spent some time working through it. Yes, Bob Coughlin's book. Very, very, very helpful. Good. Well, Rich, this has been a, a helpful conversation as we start to think about corporate worship together, and we look forward to having you here for the Bible Conference. I'm very much looking forward to it. Questions and Answers about the Bible and Theology is a podcast of Crystal Lake Baptist Church. You can learn more at clbcmn.org, where you'll find other podcast recordings, sermons, blog posts, and more. If there's a question you would like answered, you can email us at info at clbcmn.org.